The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest, uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Today's guest is Mike Murphy, legendary, you know, when you get... Oh, over 50 by enough, you're legendary. Yeah, so no, it's you know, automatic. It's, yeah. Instead of great, the word, you're legendary. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so, exactly. The legendary uh, Mike Murphy, who is the Republican political strategist, uh, has run many national campaigns, including John McCain's, uh, many gubernatorial campaigns, has won uh, many, has uh, lost many, which uh, yeah. I, I Particularly cheered. recently. That's why I'm a legend now. I used to win all the time. And I have a couple of losses, and they, they promote you to greeter at the casino. Yeah. when you yeah. win, they curse you. Right, no, exactly. And when you lose, then you yeah. can be uh, lionized. I pretty much hung it up now. I, after being the genius who spent $100 bucks losing for Jeb Bush, I decided uh, enough candidate campaigns Now it's just me. media? Well, it, what I really do is like corporate fixing. Uh, I'm not a lobbyist, but public problems, company that cares advertising. I screw around in technology a little bit, and then I moonlight in show business. But uh, I understand all that, and, and also everybody says they're retired until they're called back into battle again. True. That's what Jeb did to me with this one. Yeah, and, and, and someone who's been, been around us. But I want to—and and you, you see, Mike, and I have, I, I would say I've, I've spent a lot of time throwing things at you on television <laughs> over the last 20 years. So you're a right-wing Republican. I had no idea. Yeah, um, you ought to see the email I get. I'm, uh, you know, but, but what's interesting now and why I really want to talk to you is that when democratic norms are threatened, people from all walks of the political spectrum who notice that to be the case find a way to come together and put aside the very important but less important differences than the sort of survival of the notion of democracy. Mm-hmm. Haven't you found that to begin to be the case? Yeah, though it, there's a tension in it because on one hand, you know, a, a politics, political strength in a society is culturally driven. And so when the norms, as you say, are under attack, there's a reaction by people who cherish the culture of all parties. That's one side of the equation. The other side is partisans see it as a great weapon. This, we, we've now got a politics, and it's been around for a while, of not I'm right, you're wrong, but I'm right, you're evil. And when you're evil, anything goes in opposing you. So there's also kind of a partisan version of the Trump must be destroyed, he's evil, all Republicans are evil. And those of us who are anti-Trump Republicans are in kind of a lonely space. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I think some of us have tried to figure out how to engage in the conversation without the very rancor and justification sure. you're talking about. And, and I have been really struggling with, look, I mean, today, when we're meeting, this will be up in a week or so, but we're, I'm in a daze from the events in Syria. Right. Right. So, because when you see made manifest these questions, when you see what happens in an authoritarian regime, the, the kinds of things that they're capable of, right. and you see the images of those kids, right. it, if it doesn't leave you, even if you're calloused, even if you've been around for a while, but if it doesn't leave you slightly in a daze, um, you, you're, you're kind of in, inhuman, I, 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 right. I, I think. And so... I, what it makes me think about then is like, well, there is this reality that we have somebody who's not serious and maybe not entirely balanced in that job of president of the United uh-huh, States. Sure, no, and absolutely. you agree with, I know you agree with I've that. I've called him crazy before. I'm not licensed to do that, you know, but uh, yeah. Right. But so how are people, I guess this is the question, right? So but because you are 
um, on the inside of the Republican establishment, the traditional conservative Republican establishment. How are people in Washington behind closed doors talking about the fact in light of North Korea and Syria? How are you guys all talking to each other? Even the people who have to publicly, you know, when they're publicly facing support them, how are you talking to each other about this reality that he's maybe not stable? Yeah, well, there's more going on than meets the eye. I mean, to be fair, first, I'm like a retired general in the party. So I'm, you know, I get a certain amount of respect. They throw me a few salutes once in a while, but I'm not in it like I used to be. That said, I still talk to a lot of people. And, you know, there are factions in this. There's kind of warlord rule where there are different guys with ridiculous outfits and a thousand troops. So it's there's not one monolithic Republican Party, but it is widely known I think or there's wide concern in the party about President Trump's competence, which is kind of code word for other things. On the other hand, our politics are incredibly tribal. So the theory is, well, you know, he did win. This is the guy we got. And he's at least paying lip service to our agenda. So let's try to run the ball on the agenda. But the right. But what do the problems, senior statesmen I mean, say about that? Oh, That's, look, they're, because that in itself, we unpack that tribals a. a, a Tribal is another word for us against them. Right. A, a, a fancier way to say it is a Manichaean worldview. Uh, but, but the trouble with uh, why the Manichaeans didn't last very long, like the trouble with yeah. that view is it, 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 uh, it ends up eliminating the ability to see things in a 360 degree way. Well, what a lot of people in politics do on both sides is they're trapped in a system where they try to live to fight tomorrow. And that starts as a reasonable conclusion, but can end with kind of total corruption. So where the boundary is. And I think there are more people concerned about the president than you read about. You know, I live in Los Angeles. And so most of the people that I kind of bump into are all liberal Democrats. And they're enraged. They're literally beating their dream catchers into like stabbing sticks right now. My wife being one of them. But it's... What they really want is a third act or an Aaron Sorkin script, where all the Republicans march from Capitol Hill, put on their war medals, and surround the White House and demand he resign. That would be very satisfying to you know people who are concerned about Trump. The reality of politics is stuff happens under the surface. That's what I'm asking about. There's a lot of under-the-surface concern. Um, there's also a lot of concern growing about the 2018 elections, because if Trump implodes, a lot of these polls think I'll implode with him. So how do we prop him up with some wins to survive 2018 or actually do well to build long term right. hedges for the party and then let whatever happens? There's a lot of thinking that Donald Trump will not stay four years. That he's alone in the White House, he's unhappy, the agenda's a bit stymied. There's a lot of worry on the conservative ideological part of the party, which is most of it. I'm a conservative, but there are different flavors and degrees that Trump is a populist, not a conservative. So all of a sudden, we're not for free trade anymore. What happened? That's not what we signed up for. You know, some of other Trump's other instincts. He doesn't want to do anything about entitlement reform because it's politically too difficult. You know, being a populist means you're very zeroed in on being popular. Uh, and a, a good um, Republican, small R Republican would say, oh, mob rule. That's what we're for now. So those those tensions are all there, but they're inside the machine much more than knuckleheads like me who get out publicly. Sure, they're inside the machine be, because of this like loyalty disloyalty question and wanting to hold well you know hold ground that's been taken. Yeah, family business. We got to figure out what to do with this, but meanwhile, we're not going to give up the franchise to the socialist left. But I guess the question I'm asking, and I actually want to then talk about how you became the person that 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 you are and how these beliefs formed in you. Uh, but the, the question is when it's a family business, 
uh, by definition, it's probably not a public company very often. And the ramifications are, are, are only internal ramifications. Here, you look at Syria and you think this guy, like we can, we can say the prior administration didn't solve it. And we can say they didn't solve North right. Korea. I'm a huge Obama fan. I think he's a genius. And I have a lot of friends who worked in his administration, a lot of friends who worked in his administration. That said, we could, we could stick to the fact pattern that those problems weren't solved while he was in office. Right. Syria is a particularly tough problem. I think yes. you know, you know, there are two theories on Syria. There's kind of the old morally powerful theory of there's a slaughter going on and we as the most powerful force in the world have to do something about it. The other theory, which is no stranger in American foreign policy, is we just got to find a general to put a lid on the place and have security. Because if we knock Assad out with American military power, then different asshole murdering genocidal creeps, particularly Islamic it's, fundamentalists, it's are going to These problems are thorny, and time yeah. has shown us that um, no matter how uh, idealistic I was as a 20-year-old leading marches, okay. I, I do know that without a plan— um, just removing, most of the time, just removing a despot is a mistake without knowing what you're going to do afterwards. Right. But there is a time you and have to remove it. There's a time you have to remove a despot and when they start killing kids. Yeah. This is the question. Well, so, Rwanda, so, we, we've so, been through right, a few of these things. But so not to get into the, de so so um, if you're someone like me and and the old default was just to demonize, right? I would just demonize the unfeeling Republicans. Right. But I don't think that that's gotten us anywhere. I don't think that either side, just in a blanket way, demonizing the other side is effective anymore. I think it leads to this calcification of right. belief. It feeds that, that stalemate. Uh, that, uh, yeah. yeah. So in trying to understand it um, and em empathize with the with it, I would ask you, like, when when a president or when a, when not just the president, but sort of the people around him really aren't even giving lip service to the notion of human rights being something we be, ought to be concerned about. Like, what does that say to you about who we are as a people? Well, look, we as have, a Republican, like, what does that say to you? We have a long, long streak of starting with Woodrow Wilson, really, of not being total realist in our foreign policy. We would have taken all the oil if we were another kind of power. I mean, President George W. Bush got a lot of criticism for being kind of a American values abroad foreign policy thinker, while other people from the realist school said, oh, that's incredibly naive. The world's a jungle. So just let the right alpha ape sit on the right different, you know, acres of it and move ahead of American national interest. Uh, Barack Obama tried that in Syria. Our, you know, we, what always happens to us is, well, we don't want the despotters murdering kids. You know, I agree. No way. We, I'd like to, I'd like it to be a TV show where we can send Jennifer Gardner in to poison them at the palace. But, you know, there's a despot there. A despot will have some support, be it tribal or economic or whatever. And we knock them out. A bad other despot comes in who may be one degree better. Mm, is that a win? So we always find the third force, which is the army of librarians and college professors and pet shop owners who go out and they're good at everything except fighting the civil war because that's brutal business where you're killing your own people. So Obama kind of banked on the nice guys. He had like the PBS viewers of Syria lined up. And of course that didn't work. So Trump and Putin in a troubling way have gone the ultra realist route, which is not ah, just let you know, Assad win, clamp the thing down. Well, Assad's a war criminal. So are we endorsing that? These are the and the and, and I guess the the real concern to many people is is what's going on. So uh, as much as I didn't like George W. Bush and I think he was a terrible president, I never felt that he actually didn't give a shit. 
Oh no, he I totally never did felt that's what I'm saying. I yeah, never yeah, felt that yeah. that I felt he was wrong in his decision making a lot, but I never felt that he didn't give a shit. But see, everything has a price. So let's say you're George W. Bush now. You're looking at Syria, and you don't you give a shit. You said, well, we can't have either of these bad outcomes. So. We're going to turn the place into Cleveland, Ohio. It's going to have little league teams and, you know, vibrant economy. And we're going to send over theater troops and everything. So you use American military power to go establish that. Then you own it and you have to hold it forever. And you find out that the guys that you pushed out of power fight dirty and blow up American kids with IEDs forever. So, you know, it's each of the alternatives is painful. And because the country won't support the idea of 100,000 Americans going into Syria and staying there for a while to stop the murder, we're in this stalemate of two bad solutions. Yeah. And I guess for me, part of it is the the notion that when Trump sees Assad, what, what I think is he sees some kind of a brother right. in the same way well, that when well, he Trump, sees Putin, because Trump's authoritarian yeah, strength, instinct, yeah. all he ever talks about is strength and power and a leader. Right. What I think we think the uh, the semiotics of the way that he talks about it, yeah. what they tell us is um, actually if he could choose to, I'm not saying he would gas kids because I also don't want to be hyperbolic, but if he could choose to, Trump would rule as an authoritarian in the way, do you think that's wrong in the way that Putin rules as an authoritarian? You know, I won't take him all the way to Putin, who's a real murdering thug, but Trump does like authoritarian. He has a whiff of it to it. He, you know, he, oh, only he, a whiff. Do you think like when he well, says on American standards, it's a, it's a heavy smell right. on global world history standards. It's a whiff. He, he's really Juan Perón. That's, that's oh, okay. the best that wasn't, Trump I That find. wasn't great either. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, no, no, no. We but, got yeah. a wonderful yeah. musical out of it. Yeah, that's uh, true. Not such a good that's movie, true. but a wonderful and musical. Mandy Patinkin is Mandy parking up amazing. right now. I'm back. I was yeah. supposed to have been immortal. But yeah, uh, yeah so, you, you were supposed to have been immortal. Yeah. Um, and I say that the well, best Trump would be De Gaulle, and he's never going to get there. But he has that kind of nationalism of strength. And that is refreshing to a lot of people in a time of disorder. That's why it tends to sell. It's also not aligned with the normal American political culture. And he's right on that line. But do you think that most Republicans really value, because I try to think about what the central difference is fundamentally, really value strength over empathy? Well, remember, I don't think it's binary. I think some well, but you order things, things, though, right? Yeah, we yeah. order things. So, but here's the trick: Trump's not a Republican. The party was so I know weak and in such disarray during a time when people wanted a hammer to beat on Washington. Trump was the hammer. He won with forty five percent of the Republican vote. He he is somebody who kind of took the a third force who took the inhabited the body well, of the well, Republican but, but, party but, but, and, and but won. Neville Chamberlain wasn't a Nazi, but he sure helped yeah. him. So, right. you know, the... the yeah, the, yeah, the, but he, uh, I'm going to defend old Neville a little bit. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, somebody's got to, quote. right? Right. Yeah. See, the, the thing people forget about... You're going to defend old Neville. Yeah, no, I, I'm, Murphy. I'm a defense lawyer for the underdog here. Because in hindsight, <laughs> in hindsight, it, it, it looks brilliant. But here's what people, like the French, the French get a lot of, oh my God, they ran, oh, the you know, they're terrible, they're all cowards. Well, if if this was 1930s England... And how old are you? Late 40s, 50. 50? Yeah, same here. One of us would be dead, and two of our friends would be blind, and another would not have a limb because we'd all lived through World War I where a million people got slaughtered, you know, in the British Empire alone. Say, even worse, really, in France, it was fought on their soil. So the idea of doing it again, uh, you know, the 
all the casualties we took in Iraq was a bad day in World War I. Right. So the point is, Chamberlain and, and some of the French politicians were all so afraid of another horrible war. They also had the idea of planes dropping bombs, new thing. They thought the cities would all burn in a week and everybody would die. So they were wiggling on a hook a lot to avoid World War III. And Hitler exploited that going forward. Now, well, in hindsight, oh, of course he was dead wrong. The French were wrong not to march when the French army could have easily done it in the, the well, you know, the rural when he militarized. Because appeasement but, right. is always attractive. Right. Because it keeps you, it, pulls it keeps very you, well. It keeps yeah. you safe in the short term. Right. There are votes in appeasement. Yeah. That's great. There's yeah, a great oh, New sure. York Times poll when France fell here in the United States and Hitler was marching into uh, Paris like, Oh, you know, most Americans stay out 80%. No, the Germans doing fine. Well, yeah, because they didn't poll fat Clemenza who made it really clear in The Godfather <laughs> what he thought should have happened. As right. he said, right. as soon as Hitler pulled that stunt at Munich, they should have yeah. uh, no, no, stopped mob, him. Mob rules, which saying, are originally Roman. That yeah. was a pretty successful saying, empire. Clemenza Clemenza knew yeah. what to do, right. but, 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 but really what I'm saying is when I look at what I see as the Neville Chamberlains in your party who are taking this easy because they don't want to, I understand it. They're like those wounded warriors. They, they just live through the Obama thing. They don't want to be displaced. Well, they, they see the ideological victory. Look, I call it the Vichy Republicans, okay, which is yeah. they know better that they're getting along because it's the reality of the party right now that he's the president and he says he's for 80% of the stuff we're for. So, and we've got the House, we've got the Senate, so why not put some points on the board? But that that's applies. the mentality. But the, so that, that's the mentality. But, but then there are the, those like you who understand that if the whole thing blows up, then none of it blows up either figuratively or literally, then those gains will have been uh, quite short-lived. Oh, yeah. Look, I think we may pay a long-term price, and maybe as quick as 2018 for this. But right now... I'm still a, you know, you're yelling at the TV because I'm still a card-carrying Republican general. I want Mitch McConnell to hit home runs. I'm worried about Trump, but I'm, I'm on the no, team. No, I understand that. It, and we would normally, we would, we could really fight about that. But uh, at another, at another time. That'll be the sequel. That'll be the, the, the second conversation. But could, could you talk a little bit? Because I do think one of the reasons that we all have such a hard time finding common ground is that we don't actually... I have no idea how someone grows up and becomes a Republican. <laughs> I have a lot of, like, I really don't, a smart yeah. person, an educated person. Sure. Uh, I, it's hard for me to understand, uh, a well, we or not just a Republic, small R Republican, but a lifer who, for whom this is the great mission, uh, yeah, this, no, mi totally who has guess. this kind of zeal. So, like, when, when did you start thinking, uh, like, sort of recognizing the centrality of politics in your life? Like, how did that dawn as you were growing up? And then how did your allegiance form and why? Well, it's a great question because these bubbles we're in is really the story of American politics now. And it's geographic, too. We don't live places where anybody votes differently than we do. I'm like a weirdo in my zip code in L.A. Um, so where did I come from? I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I'm from a Democratic family. Uh, my grandfather was, you know, started in the auto plants, then night law school, couple of attempts at the bar, <laughs> eventually passed and was an elected probate judge in Wayne County, Joe Murphy. And his son, my dad, another night school lawyer, originally labor. I'm law. a night school lawyer too. You see, with the, yeah, they rule the world. I yeah. went to Fordham Law at night. Okay, well there yeah, you go. So, there yeah. you go. Um, and uh, yeah, he went to. Uh, well, it's now been absorbed by Michigan State, so he claims he's a Spartan, but sure. it wasn't at the time. Anyway, so I grew up in a family that was middle class, really upper middle class. Because uh, my dad became the general counsel of a nonprofit health insurance company, Blue Cross, one of the big ones, thanks to the UAW. Um, 
other relatives, you know, a lot of some rank and file, um, a few priests. You know, it was a classic Irish Catholic family. And I grew up in the, well, I was in high school. I graduated in 1980 in the 70s. And my big interest was international policy, related, diplomatic history, all that stuff. And, you know, I could see As a Carter. kid, did you, I just want to say, as a kid, did you notice... This stuff, like, were you politically aware as a yeah. you're obviously smart. You went to Georgetown and Harvard after that, but I'm saying, were you, did, did you notice that stuff? Is it? Oh yeah, no, we were. There were a couple of us who we all kind of read the paper and kind of absorbed politics. It was the Carter era, and that we still had bad Russians back then. You know, they become kind of the for a while they were the comedy Russians. They're drunk, they stumble around. Ah, it was still they were rolling into Afghanistan. There was a Soviet empire. I mean, Ivan Koloff was the big WWE <laughs> villain in like seventy one, right. seventy two. Right, exactly. As I think like he's the Brazilian. Bad, bad um, Russian. So, so, but anyway, they. I was very aware of that. So I go to the Foreign Service School at Georgetown, which is you know right, right. in that world. And increasingly, I was. Um, even though my parents were varying degrees of Democrat, my mom was a little more liberal than my dad. My dad was a good Tory. Were you highly religious? Were you a highly religious family? No, 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 not really. We were kind of lapsed Catholics. Other branches of the family were. I've got a cousin who was the Pope's chief of staff. So we, we, we. In fact, he would come down to Washington when I lived there, and we'd go have lunch at the Palm Restaurant, and he would wear the collar. Uh, he was he was working for O'Connor in New York, and he's at the Vatican now. But anyway, and all my political friends like, it's too late, Murphy. You know, <laughs> so sacred and the profane right. was kind of the crest of uh, the family. Coat. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So, so you, but you weren't. You didn't come in. At, you didn't come in at no. a place of religious belief. No, but I was around the some of the Catholic theories, not only of social justice, but of morality of right and wrong, absolute truth, and wasn't big on moral relativism. But I didn't get into politics for that. I got into politics because I believed in individual freedom, and I was concerned about American foreign policy. I got During into During Reagan. Yeah, well, Reagan kind of happened after I was concerned because I kind of woke up during high school. Right. And then I went off to Georgetown. I went to fight the Soviets. I remember sitting there at 8 a.m. getting barked at in Russian by an old Air Force defector who flew the MiG over in 59, threw the keys at him and said, get me a job, Colonel Pirogov, screaming at me in Russian every morning. And we had the old Defense Department, you know, textbooks uh, for two pairs of pantyhose. Perhaps I could photograph the power plant, yeah, you know, kind of. Sure. And so... I got involved in the college Republicans because I'd always also been interested in theater and film. I was a movie nerd and I was interested in the theater of politics. Loved the conventions, loved all that right. stuff. And the pageantry. Right, exactly. So I. And messaging? When, cause did yeah. that come with the idea of you realized, did you know you had a skill for communication? Well, I was always verbal and, um, I, again, I liked, I had an eye, I thought I did anyway, for kind of film and how I was very interested. Like, I'd watch a movie and I'd try to anticipate the next scene because, you know, any character you've seen the first 10 minutes they paid for, you're going to be back, you know. Um, so I just kind of got pulled into it. At Georgetown, we were a big superpower in college, Republicans, which was a lot of fun back then because it was a wild libertarian. We'd all go get arrested at the Russian embassy or something. And um, it was a fun time to be a Republican. And I got an internship on the Hill, an unpaid internship in the House Recording Studio, working for three Republican members of Congress. And two were from California where cable TV had just shown up. So what we would do is get three stools and one guy would interview his two buddies for 30 minutes. And of course, the topic would be that guy's incredible accomplishments. Then they switched stools. And after 90 minutes, each guy had a 30 minute show, which would be on a Umatic cassette. So really? an encyclopedia yeah. volume that we would FedEx, you know, I would take it to, it was very like special delivery 
to go back to Thousand Oaks, California to get on the local cable TV, which was all new. So anyway, I'm doing that one day, and we had a special guest congressman. The regular two guys couldn't make it. And we had an actor named David Prowse that everybody in America has seen, but nobody has heard the name of. He is the guy in the Darth Vader suit. Oh, and this right. was during the early yeah. Star Wars. A big bodybuilder. And he spoke like David Niven. He was a very nice guy. And so they're interviewing him. That was our idea of a celebrity in this thing. He was over here selling something they had in the UK called like green safety belts about kids crossing in the streets. They were kind of invading, I think. And uh, a congressman, multi-term congressman, after the thing, asked him about the lightsaber. And did anybody get hurt on the set? And does the British Army have any of those? And you must have hid the power cord up your sleeve. He thought the fake part was the power cord, not the sword. He thought it would really cut tables in half. And I thought, okay, I think I'm going into politics. There's some room here. Right. And one thing led to another. I started making political TV commercials in 1982 out of my college dorm room for a congressman who couldn't get reelected. And the guy won. I had my hit. Let, let's, let, let's go deeper into when you said it was fun to be a college Republican then. You know, I've I've read the stories of like uh, Atwater and Rove being college Republicans. Uh, yeah, a little bit before. All that. true. Yeah, I was the generation right after. Right, that. you were the generation after they yeah. were. But what was it about the Republican values at the time? Because it was bundled with a lot of social stuff too. Yeah, no, no, the the social stuff was it was part of the coalition, what they called the New Right. But if you were on a college campus, particularly north of the Sun Belt. It was like anything else. It was about beer and fun and rebellion. Carter was the establishment. Carter was ineffective. Reagan was coming in. There's all that excitement. There's going to be a big change. Politics, the country's going to get back on its feet. And it was, we were all kind of part of it. It was, um, it was like exciting and interesting, but it was very libertarian. There's a lot of beer and Coke and all kinds of, you know, Republican Party, college Republican conventions back then were like incredibly wild. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing Oliver Stone, you know, made in W. You see those kind of parties. Yeah. No, happening. no. It, it, it sure, was again, the 80s. It was the beginning that, but, of the 80s. And most trends start with young people. And there but we even like were. in the Reagan administration, then as you're young, because I remember being like, I'm some four years younger than you are. I graduated high school in 84. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, my perception, you know, I remember, uh, talk about trying to remove dictators and the results of that and trying to put strong, you know, remove commies and put strong men in and then remove strong men and put other people in. Right. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. A lot of trading weapons for money. Oh, no, look, it, it was a real, and, and how did a that, foreign policy realist. Right. So I mean, how did that I'm, land for you, all that stuff? Yeah. Oh, no, it was, again, you're young, and half of it's the drama of being in the middle of it. There are girls there to impress. I mean, it, you know, some of it's just yeah. the theater of life. But I was a, um, what was overly simplified, I now say as an old man, but what was clear then was easy bad guys. We had bad Russians and their bad allies, and they were trying to muscle Europe a little bit, and they were on the run around the world. And so we had a pretty simple solution, which was we got to do something about them. Yeah. So, like, here's the thing. I was trying to think about, like, so where I was then, just a few years after you, was helping to lead the divestment movement on my campus because I felt, like, to me, I always saw the human rights issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm at this age, I'm not trying to, like, um, you know, the, the Cold War where there was the real possibility of um, nuclear annihilation was a real thing. Like, I don't think you were wrongheaded to be concerned about yeah, that. But, there t- but for some reason, where I found myself landing was like, um, my school better divest from places that invest in South Africa because apartheid, I can see the kind of cost of human life 
in apartheid. That seems unfair to me. And so we, it's almost like what, what Republicans, conservatives and liberals, or we can um, see d- sort of order unfairness differently. It, no, no, I, I see where you're going. I mean, what we, what we would talk about is we'd laugh and say, oh, look, Berkeley just passed a nuclear free zone. Right. Wow. Somebody better tell the Kremlin they're not allowed to nuke sure. Berkeley or there could be a very stiff letter of censure coming their way. We thought it was laughably naive. And remember, at Georgetown, I'm going to the Foreign Service School full of Cold War guys who were like, you know, eyeball yes. to eyeball, Dean Rusk, they blinked. Yeah, of and course. so that's a real politic kind of education about foreign policy where there's a lot of, you know, it's calculating the national interest, loading it with morality to a point, but also knowing that humans like to kill other humans. Right. And, and that's that, never that idea to folks who, who sort of have the belief system that you do is takes primacy over that other thing. Cause you think, well, if that happens, none of the other well, stuff the, matters. But like, I looked at the legacy. So, cause again, cause we came up at a similar time. Like, I remember being fascinated by William F. Buckley on, on, on television, and I would watch him speak at that, that time, right? I'm in ninth or 10th grade in uh, 81, and I would watch that guy speak, and I was like, well, that's the smartest, one of the smartest human beings I've ever seen. I bought his lexicon book. I memorized oh, wow, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but then when I scratched the surface and I realized, oh, he came to prominence as a race baiter and hated, hated black people and, in fact, thought they were inferior and, and in fact, spoke about that publicly. I'm not... These are not um, facts in question. He did go and make lectures about it. Whether he really believed it or not doesn't matter. He he gave voice to it. So to, and 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 he was considered the intellectual sort of giant of modern republicanism. I was well, like conservatism. He'd say it was a conservative sort of modern conservatism. Yeah. So then I think, well, that how even to you then was that legacy not inextricably intertwined? Well, I. I don't think we ever dug into his past about horrible racist things he might have done. You know, people, people evolved from their sins forward. And I think is the, the net weighing of his life is he was a patriot and a force for good. I'm not too familiar. I, I didn't dig into the biography trying to find it. But you've seen those, spe- but you've seen this, you know, he got on TV with James Baldwin. I mean, he said all that stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, say no, all that stuff. Is, I didn't, I didn't really dig into that. What I heard was standing athwart history yelling stop. Right. And I said, that's right. And so it, it, we weren't that concerned with the legacy of the past. Part of it is being young. Sure. Um, what we wanted to do was build a new free enterprise successful country, and we wanted to curb the Soviets. And to some extent, the Chinese, so that was hard to figure out because they were still kind of sealed up. But I guess what I'm asking you is, does the fact that there was this legacy of what I would call intolerance, d- does that help lead to sort of like like being willing to um, overlook it or forgive it or or not give it sort of not give it much weight, does that explain partially what ha- like the willingness to allow I, I, I know. this you, you, stuff? You're trying to, to draw a I'm line. I'm just asking of, you. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't believe that's true. I believe there are strains of that in the culture which still remain, and they drive an ugly side of politics. But the problem with going back to original sin in politics is the Democratic Party was the party of segregationism. Martin Luther King started out as a Republican. You know, the white Southern machines were Democrat and segregationist. We still have. The I mean, I know what the I know about the Dixiecrats, of course, yeah, 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 all that yeah. stuff, so the right? Point but, is that, we, but I can say, but how the can difference you ever is be that the, the, the Democrats um, 
don't uh, celebrate those people the way that like people like figures like Buckley are celebrated. That's the difference. Well, Ro- we, Robert Byrd was the Senate majority leader for decades until he basically, you know, got too old to find the building. And he was a card carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. Lloyd Benson, who was a vice presidential nominee in the Democratic Party yeah. as a young congressman, called for a nuclear attack and, you know, a genocidal nuclear attack on Korea. So, you know, there it's just that's why, from my point of view, there are strains of intolerance in both parties historically because there are strains in our culture of intolerance. And look, we we have some creepy people on the alt-right hanging around the Republican Party. I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. I've fought in my old career in politics. We also have some kind of less easy to define but creepy hard left people on the Democratic Party. So it's... Though the message of hate isn't in the same way. I would well, just it's say, a class hate rather than a racial hate, which seems a little, which is a little less uh, well, I would uh, say, okay, horrible, let's, let's but it's still so, hate. So again, my goal is really to try to understand, because I'm talking to someone yeah. who's been at the front lines of this. So like, well, remember, related you're, to you're, that, you're, I'm you're trying to... You're talking to a mechanic, too. You know, I've been an activist, but I've really been somebody who engineers campaigns for people. So I've kind of wrangled Yes, votes. but you're a brilliant person I, who's... Well, I don't know about You're a brilliant that. person who has decided, who's... who's chosen sides and this oh, yes. is the side for whom right this is the side for which you're being the mechanic mm-hmm. so like that's why i think it's it's that's it's, some mechanics don't choose a side right they just choose being mechanics i was never comfortable with that yeah but you like to we have a line this year in billions coming up actually by the time this goes up it will have aired where a character says uh, i like i like choosing sides it makes me feel good right to choose sides so i understand right. that but, but, but see the hard part though is somebody who's been a side chooser for 30 years is your own side does drive you crazy. Well, and then at times yeah. you have to come in and say, "My look, I'm a lifelong Knicks fan, but right, James right, Dolan, right, right. James Dolan is so bad that it's really hard for me to be a Knicks fan. I wanted to go switch my allegiance to the Nets. I couldn't quite do it. Right, right. But if I thought that James Dolan was going to nuke New York City, I would. You know, yeah. no, 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 that's no, when I, I would I, then. I think I, then yeah, I'd look, have to I'm, put on the Nets jersey as a as a career Republican hack, albeit a kind of eccentric one who's always done my own thing, but still. I've never criticized a Republican nominee before during the campaign. I did a whole podcast about not like him. No, so I'm in somewhat uncomfortable territory here, but I, I just don't have subtle views about Donald Trump. Right. And rightly so. I mean, I, rightly so. But, so. but related to this question, because um, I'm trying to understand the healthcare thing. Very impossible to understand. Right. But but the mood of it and the feeling. So people, and I, I've been talking to friends of mine before when I said the thing about uh, I don't really talk to people. I, I have one of my best friends. Uh, uh, a guy named Joe Hardy who lives in uh, Texas and he, he makes records with, with ZZ Top. He's a great producer and engineer. He's a brilliant guy in Mensa and uh, amazing, but he's a libertarian. And uh, we talk about these issues, but he, uh, you know, we've talked about healthcare a lot. And I'm, but I'm, what I'm trying to understand about the healthcare question is like when, when, when people like me look at the healthcare question as separate fr- from politics, like we just see, inequality like and we feel it's just functionally not fair like why should i because i've been successful get access to better health care than someone else like that's just my knee-jerk reaction sure. to it sure. right and then uh but is the counter argument that we're missing and this from talking is that uh that i think neither side really like the republicans don't really give voice to this is the counter argument well i as a libertarian leaning person shouldn't be forced to pay for someone else. That's one care. of them. It's not really the Republican argument. It might be the Freedom Caucus argument. Um, that see, the healthcare, 
Healthcare is like a 700-pound grizzly bear in a titanium cage. It's too big for our politics to handle because our politics is so broken. So what happens is the two parties take turns throwing each other into the cage to be eaten. So we threw the Democrats in the cage to be eaten, and we campaigned against them, saying, oh, it's terrible, Obamacare is the worst thing in the world. And then we're the dog that caught the car. So now the Democrats said, your turn, and we dived into the cage, and now they're a bunch of bones and a smiling bear. The, but what, what happens is but, we think, this is what I'm trying to understand about humans, because yeah. I'm trying to humanize the other side for myself, because yeah. since we're so, since I think Trump is so inhuman. So I, I guess what I view is that I, people- i say he's like, all too human. Sure. Well, fault. Sure. But I, that's I know great. the point That's very Calvinist in a way, but <laughs> yes. he's a fallen- Well, I am a Republican, even if I'm a Catholic. Yeah. yeah that, but that, that uh, if I drove by and I saw someone being turned away from healthcare, it would break my heart. And if you guys did, you'd be like, serves them right for not uh, working harder. So can can explain to me what, what, what I'm missing in what that? What we'd actually say is crawl your way to the hospital. They have to take you. Um, but uh, and right, but we, we might give them a book on how to build a car and hope they, you know, pull themselves up by the yeah. bootstraps. Do you understand what I mean about the split in sort of like how we look at these things? Yeah, yeah I, I do. Um, but I don't I don't want to put all of either party into a complete, you know, you know, pitch on that. I mean, what really happened with healthcare is we like a lot of individual freedom. And when Mitt Romney, and I worked for him, I did his campaigns for governor. Um, I didn't do any of the presidential campaigns, and the campaign for governor. And he had this idea of an insurance mandate, which is basically basic actuarial science, like car insurance. You can't only have bad drivers try to buy car insurance because the policy will cost right. a, a new car a year. So he, you know, it, the actuarial side of it worked. But the Republican Party, loving freedom the way we did, just hated the idea of a mandate. That was a mistake because the mandate is the only way to make the numbers work on health care, particularly if you're not into Right, death of course. Panels, the healthy people have to pay for the unhealthy people. That's how yeah, it you works. You just have to have a big insurance pool. So Barack Obama's plan had plenty of flaws because he did a better job of expanding access than he did figuring out how to pay for it. But he had a mandate. So we go campaign about pulling the mandate. And we try. We, now we have a plan to pull the mandate, which means not only all the Obamacare pain, and there's plenty because the system is becoming more expensive, but we cut one of the actuarial legs off. And huge mistake from a policy point of view, but our politics incentivized us to go for the cheap applause. So here we are. The truth is we, we can make Obamacare a little better. We do not have the power, neither do the Democrats, to fix health care. You'd have to bring in the government of Singapore and suspend democracy to do that. So I don't think it's just a question of empathy. I mean, when people get involved in politics, they they, they need to have a cause to motivate and put up with all the bullshit. And for liberals, it's right. we're good people doing the right thing, which makes it easier to get up in the morning because those fuckers, you know, the... Dick Cheney and oil and blood, you know, their plan, we're going to fight them. I feel good today. And yeah, you're I'm describing gonna, me. Yeah, you're describing me. Well, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, gonna, I'm being a little pejorative yes, here for argument. fine. I'll but, take it. Yeah. But, you know, and I'm going to drive a Prius. Right. You know, now the Chinese kids are all going to get mercury poisoning at Fuck, the battery I still factory. love 9-11s. I'm not really a good. Uh, good I'm not really. Good. I'm an old Detroit I'm guy. I'm not a good enough. Does I'm not, not a good yeah. enough. Uh, yeah, drive oh, a clean but, diesel. It's a better technology. <laughs> okay, good. Um, but. And then so and on then your side, on our side, we're like, well, whenever the Leviathan, meaning to do good, takes over all power, you get the Soviet gulag. You know, you, you basically get no freedom anymore and everybody is mediocre and humans are beat down. And that is horrible. The, the horrible superpower and therefore and they're going to take your freedom. They're going to take your they're freedom take away your and your ability away. to um, buy your exceptionalism 
uh, give well, yourself a, a, a different quality of a, life. Ability to do anything. You just, you're just pro number 468, having people's mandated happiness. So we both have our boogeymen we fight. The truth is real freedom is in the middle because you don't want a free enterprise that eats everybody who's a little slower and a little weaker. And you don't want the Orwellian state where there's, you know, yes. a corrupt so, leadership thing. And so as parents. a salesman, as a mechanic, as somebody who's been really good at this messaging stuff. Medium good. <laughs> good at times. Yeah. Uh, Used no, to be great. Then I got old. At, at, who, man, who among us? But, I know. Uh, but, but as somebody like uh, who's um, spent a lot of time thinking about how to convince people to do what you want them to do through messaging. Um, when the religious right became really tied in and bundled into, um, conservatism, because when you talk about freedom, you know, I've read a lot of libertarian theology, tons of the roots of libertarianism. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I've spent a lot of time in the last few years reading about it because, uh, I felt that it was going to be something that. Uh, both sides were going to try to claim in a way, and I was interested mm-hmm. in why and what it really meant. And although one could say that the inalienable rights thing comes from God, you could use that as a justification for it. But the uh, true pure libertarianism, the true self-determination, certainly doesn't have room for deciding uh, a whole bunch of stuff that the religious right would want to force. Right. On, oh, on no, people. they're in conflict. So, so if those things are in conflict, why is it, hasn't someone figured out how to unbundle that and sell that? Well, cause you know, two and a half plus two and a half is five and we're trying to get to five. It's a coalition party. So on one hand, the libertarians would say there's absolutely, you know, church and state all the way. Life is basically a contract enforced by a polite, underfunded police department. Problem is, that's much more clean in the abstract than in everyday life. It's utopian as, as utopian yeah. as communism, as, yeah, totally. I totally. understand that. Yeah. It's, and then the social conservatives, and you know, I'll defend them a little. I'm going to go back to my Chamberlain roots here. To them, there are mean-spirited people in all movements, including that one. But to the bulk of them, it's a civil rights issue. The rights of the unborn, you know, from their point of view. And so they want to use the power of government to protect those rights. And they also well, believe I the think country- it's a co-option of the word rights. Well, I know, I know. And that's I'm saying a, to me, it's a co-option yeah. of the rights, especially when it comes to yeah. take take the unborn, take abortion, which we there will never be but agreement about. But from their but gay point marriage of view, is not yeah. a gay marriage should be a libertarian. Libertarians should yeah. think gay marriage is fine. Oh, they and most right. do, by the way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But then there's this strain, even of modern libertarianism, the Rand Paul, Ron, Ron Paul, certainly, right. where there's it's married to this religious well it's also political coalition that that's the wedding ring because again they if you're you can be a libertarian in alabama you're probably going to be an anti-gay rights libertarian for another 10 years till the demography of the gay rights movement will eventually every day a lot of people who oppose gay rights die and a lot of people are born are going to support them yeah so it's a dead issue it's over it's just a matter of a ticking clock of evolution and i'm a pro-gay rights republican so you know it's an issue i paid some attention to but the social conservatives, again, it's like any character in a screenplay, even if they're doing things that, you know, from another point of view you don't like, they think they're doing good Yep. Uh, with honest motives. And they're a huge vote and they're a huge influence in the Republican Party. They're another group in the party that has a lot of tension with Trump because they know deep down he's a big city libertine. 
<laughs> you know, so it's another the, the, another marriage of kind of a weak handshake, and we're seeing how that goes over time. They're much more comfortable with Pence, who is of the social conservative world legitimately. Yes, you you couldn't call him a, a, a libertarian. I've I've questions uh, about him him also. I mean, do you think that long term this 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 coalition holds of the religious right well, and the libertarians, or do you think that because many people who identify as liberal if they understood sort of a more pure form of libertarianism yeah. would be drawn to it for its promises. Like if, if the right ad men and women got together and wanted to sell a modern version of libertarianism uncoupled from the religious right, I think that that could become a dominant force. Well, yeah, a, a tempered libertarianism. Uh, I, I would say this, I, and I've said a lot before for years that the fundamental struggle in the Republican Party is between the mathematicians and the priests. Mathematicians like me who say, hey, the country under 18 is only, you know, 55, 57% Caucasian. And we don't get any other votes. The future looks very bad for us unless we get Latinos, unless we get young people. And the trend in the country is secularization. So if we're going to bet on the Christian right to bail us out as the population grows and the demography changes, we're dead. We're going extinct. That would be a bad thing because then the left would run wild. The priests say have faith. As they and, will. And, as they right, will. Right, right. I'm a, I'm a mathematician educator by priest. They say have faith, repeat the gospel louder, get your maid to listen to Rush Limbaugh. That'll change everything and we'll get the African-American vote. Now, the problem with that is the priest just won an election. And in politics, a lot of the argument about where we ought to go is anecdotal. So they've got a big old ace card, and they got a lot of the ground troops in the primary. So us mathematicians in the party are getting our ass kicked right now. Well, well because the time, available heuristic is, well, this guy won, right? That's the available story. You say anecdotal, right, but right, right yeah, it's the exactly. Michael, people haven't read Michael Lewis's book about Kahneman and Tversky. It's a heuristic. You can right, right. you can grab onto this rule of thumb. Well, this works, and so you yeah. grab it. No, it's just like Hollywood development. Well, get me another the whatever six months. Yeah, what worked six months yeah, ago? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it it doesn't necessarily I need a NASA movie with Puerto Ricans. You know, I mean, but, it, they just are repetitive and derivative. It's the nature of decision making to guard against risk. So right now we're on the outs. But over time, the country's changing, and we're right about that. Do you think that there's a... So I, I stopped doing this podcast for a few months after the election because I couldn't figure out how to have the conversation. I'm still on hiatus. And I know you're still yeah. on hiatus. Yeah. I mean, do you... Is there a kind of an, an acceptance, a sad acceptance to the fact that this is all going on? Or are people... Like, I know people on, on my side are, 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 mass, are still massing at the wall. You know, they're... Yeah. They're, they're not going oh, to, we're coming. not going to stop resisting. Well, you guys haven't had your big cathartic battle back yet. It's coming in 18. Right. And uh, we're, we have to find the ground for our battle back in the party That's what my because question. it's our yeah. franchise on the line. And I'm not quite sure. I mean, I, I have not, I've taken myself off television. I haven't been on since election night. I'm just taking a break. One, I don't want to be a prop in somebody else's bad movie. Yeah. And I'm just tired of it. I'll go back on eventually. Um, the podcast is fun because it's unfiltered. Yeah. Um, the TV format now on cable, you're squabbling of somebody in a party dress. And it's just, yeah. you know. I mean, I happen to love Chuck Todd. He's, uh, oh, Chuck's uh, and, great. And, and seeing you on his show is fantastic. I, that's the show I'll probably go back on when I decide I can take television. But to your point, the battlefield for folks like me is a quieter one right now within the party. And we might have to wait for whatever pain is coming our way on the other hand. And then this show up equation. in 2019. Somebody's going to have to rebuild this thing. Does it make you sad? Yes. 
We have a good cause. We want to make the, we didn't call the Jeb Bush super PAC right to rise because it, you know, we needed something with an R. We thought income inequality was a big deal. And for, for a decade, the working middle class hasn't had any. So as a, kumbaya, as, a as a kumbaya liberal, I know what Jeb, I know the answer to what Jeb could have done to one to win. I actually know. In the Republican primaries? Yeah. Tell me. I know, but it's over now. Well, the and it's going to sound crazy to you, and it's real Aaron Sorkin movie-ish, but if, if everyone would have been aware that this is where we'd, we would have ended up, what Jeb Bush should have done is, upon being insulted by Trump at a debate, he should have walked up to him and backhanded him in the face. <laughs> and if he would have actually slapped Trump and seen- I think he would have liked to. would have seen the fear on Trump's face. I think it would have changed everything like in the dead zone when you saw the reality of who that guy was. Nobody, either metaphorically, nobody said you're a crazy person, Donald. Hillary didn't either. I would watch Hillary at these debates and I would say like, why? I don't understand why she too doesn't say you're, she almost did it. You're unstable. But I think you guys had the real opportunity to do it. Jeb had the real opportunity to say, Donald, you're a crazy lunatic. Right. Oh, look, uh, did you guys consider it? Well, I was a super PAC. I couldn't talk to I, the I campaign. Know, but did, but did his people consider I'm it? I'm sure he did. Later, and he did take him on when he, on the gambling issue and slapped him around pretty well. I think the problem beyond the debate theatrics, and it's so fascinating because activists of both sides always resonate to debate stuff. I can't tell you after McCain lost, how many people came up and grabbed me by the lapels. I didn't do the presidential race. I did the Straight Talk Express one, the first one. But they grabbed me and said, why the fuck didn't John McCain? Right. You did the David, you did the David Foster Wallace one. Yes. Yeah. He was a friend of of mine. That book is, if people haven't read up Simba, Simba, you you must read it. Go get, uh, go get Consider the Lobster and read read it in there. If you can find it online, it's, um, it's one of the greatest things ever written about politics. I tracked him down after that. And we, we had you a did? couple of fun dinners. Yeah, yeah. He's a great awesome. guy. He's a hero of mine. Uh, anyway, so they grab me by the pelts and say, why didn't McCain t- turn to Obama at the debate and say, you, sir, are a Kenyan socialist? That would have done it. And so maybe it would have. But the real problem Jeb had, which is almost a credit to Jeb, is he was the opposite of what they were looking for. They wanted the hammer. I saw this when I did the Schwarzenegger campaign. They didn't care about qualifications or background. The difference is Arnold took it a lot more seriously than Trump did and prepared himself. But they wanted a hammer to go smash the Capitol into a million pieces. And that's what they found. And now we're going to see what happens. Yes. Um, uh, lastly. Um, sure. I, I asked a friend like someone deep inside the political world, if he had noticed a change in some operatives, like a remembering of original purpose. And he said some, but only in the guys who've already made their cash. <laughs> so, There's probably some truth to that. Yeah. I mean, do you think that there, it, like when you're just in the, like, you know, 20 years ago, would your position have been, well, screw it. This is our guy and uh, we're going for it. When How you, do we get those people? Well, two things. I think when you're young, you're like a young doctor. You want to operate on anybody they let you operate on. As you get to be older, you start to be more concerned about what you're capable of doing. It's just a maturity thing. But the operative culture now, the younger ones, is a little different than when I was coming up. And in some ways, I blame Kevin Spacey. You know, I've decided to blame him. I blame Andy Cohen for destroying our culture and the enemy of the people. And I blame Spacey a little bit because the American and Bo Willeman is a friend of mine. But the Me too. I love Bo. Yeah, he's great. The um the culture of that show, that kind of politics, has had an impact on the young operatives. 
that kind of dark nihilistic kind of total so, view. Right. So you're saying in the same way that like John Favreau and Lovett and Tommy were influenced by West, West Wing, Wing the new these generation, people are influenced by that. Yeah. And so people watch pop culture in our society and it has an impact on the youngins. And so you see that bubbling up now. You know what we should do? We should ban all the records. <laughs> no, like, a vibrant democracy has to have a vibrant the way, pop culture. She was on but, my uh, side. Let me just say, she was on my side. The record banner was on my side. Oh, that's true. Yeah. She Mrs. was, sadly. Hadassah, sadly, yeah, yeah. she was on my side of the conversation. Um, I well, promise there, there is somebody said, I can't remember the quote was that free speech works great when you have a strong culture. Yes. And that I think I worry about our culture now in the country. Two bubbles that don't talk to each other, income disparity, more and more junk on TV. You know, and I hate to sound like Mrs. Hathaway to use a really old reference, but there, I, I'm not a small, I think the but, only, listen, man, and, and we can end here, but the, the only uh, antidote, really, to the junk on TV is Billions, which is on Sunday nights. Is Chuck going to be governor? On Showtime at 10 p.m. That's your antidote. I agree with you. Yeah. The rest of it, garbage. I want to see the episode. Here's the pitch where he has to grovel to local 1199. Then we know he's serious about being mayor governor. Uh, so, Mike Murphy, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. There's so much more I wanted to get to, but I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. And the more people from these different polls are able to talk, I do think the better chance we have to find some uh, way forward. Absolutely. It's good to be here. Thank you. I enjoy this podcast. Great. Where can people find you? Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter at Murphy Mike. One of these days, I may go back on television, and uh, I'm going to do the Radio podcast Free again. GOP, and, you know, I'm going to wait to 100 days. That's what I said, and then decide. Um, well, we need your voice. Call. I think you should bring it, bring it back, but do it in a really honest. Allow yourself to just be completely real on that. <laughs> well, I have tried to. Yeah, you have here, and I appreciate it. Well, I like the oral history part of Radio G- Free GOP too. So you know, we'll see. It may evolve into something. Uh, I hope you do. Uh, uh, I am uh, Brian Koppelman. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me the moment, bk at gmail.com. Don't say uh, don't have people uh, from the Republican Party on the show. I'm, I'm going to continue to because I think it's a valuable thing. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>